before he sneaks out of here, I, I just want to embarrass Aaron for a second. There, there were no songs that really hit the theme of what we were talking about today. And so, uh, as you may have guessed, he wrote that um, for this message. So, Let's pray. Let's pray. Jesus, my prayer would be, as we've been reminded in that great song, God, the would you take these feeble words of mine, infuse them with your spirit, and God, would you awaken things to life, please? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen and amen. Um, as I mentioned before, my seven-year-old son, Ethan, absolutely loves Legos, and this last Christmas, we got him um, this brand new Ninjago Lego set, I mean, a few hundred pieces, and he was so excited when he opened this up. And it took him a few days and about six hours uh, of his Christmas break, but he eventually put this whole thing together, and he was so excited. He did it pretty much by himself, but not without tears, not without tears, but pretty much by himself. And so we, uh, uh, he came to show us, and he picked it up, and he walked into the kitchen where Kelly and I were sitting at the table, and he was holding this brand new Lego set perfectly put together. And I don't know what happened. I can't describe it another, any other way other than um, time just seemed to stop. And he said, look at my Lego set. And at that moment, it slipped out of his hands. And slow motion, I kid you not, Kelly and I make eye contact with each other and we're like, oh no. And it went down, and we have a wood floor in our kitchen, and it hit said wood floor, and I've never seen a Lego set demolished like that. It would have been more put together if it got run over by a truck, okay? Just absolutely everywhere. And we look at each other. Kelly's like, we'll help you put it back together. I'm like, you're on your own, buddy, right? Lesson learned. Hold on to that thing. Grip it tight. You know... Ethan's not alone, is he? Like, there's moments in life, aren't there? There's, there's times in life where we work really, really hard on things. And then just a moment passes, and it slips through our fingers. Like, it may have happened to you with a job where you've, you've put in the time, you've put in the effort, and you got passed over for the promotion. I mean, it may have happened to you in your financial situation, I had an experience. It actually happened yesterday. I saw this play out. I got the chance to marry Tech's son, who is um, one of our ministry residents last year. He's a worship leader. Uh, and they picked this place in um, Red Feather, Colorado, about two and a half hours away, at this beautiful ranch. And it was absolutely gorgeous. This picture was taken at 4 p.m. <clears throat> if only they had got married at 4 p.m., so they got married at 5 p.m., and at 4.30, there were some clouds that started to billow up, and at 4.45, it looked a bit ominous, and at 5 o'clock, it started to drizzle, but I'm one of those guys where I'm like, no, listen, this is beautiful. We're doing it here. We're not going to, heck no, we're not going to plan B, and so we prayed that the skies would part. Now, we've made, we should have been more specific, right, because there is the term, and the skies opened up. And what happened next, I can only describe it as a deluge. And we were singing, great is thy faithfulness. We didn't sing the verse about rain, okay? But we were singing, great is thy faithfulness. And during that, 
it started to rain so hard. I can't describe to you how hard it rained. We tried to stick it out. It didn't happen. And so months and months and months of planning where the bride has in her mind this picture of exactly what it's going to be like and the groom's smart enough to go, yeah, I want it like she wants it, right? <laughs> Ends up like that. And it may not have been for your wedding, but my guess is you've had moments in life. You've had times where you put in the work, you made the right investments at the right time, and then the market just turned on you. I was living in California in 2008, and we had friends where the housing market just turned, and they lost 50% of the value of their house in one day. It must have felt like that. It must have felt like the bottom just fell out. See, nobody in this room is outside of that or above that feeling. See, because we live in a world where there's two things that have a tendency of happening to us quite often. One of them is storms of life. They're, they're things that you didn't choose and they just happen because maybe you're in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever the reason be. Is they, just, they just happen because we live in a fallen world. Storms come. It happens. Then there's also sin, either in our life or in other people's lives. And it creates situations where we just feel like, man, some of the things we've worked so hard for just vanish before our very eyes. We've been walking through a series in the Psalms, in the Psalms of Ascent specifically, and today we're looking at a psalm by um, Solomon, who was extremely wise. He asked God for wisdom, and God granted him his request. And what Solomon's going to do today, he's the author of this psalm, and he's going to teach us why we feel the way we do when things like that happen, when the storms come in. And then he's going to teach us what we can do with it and how we can make the best of it. Psalm 127, if you have a Bible, will you turn there with me? And guys in the back, I'm getting a ton of feedback. Can you help me out? Thanks. Psalm 127, and here's what Solomon writes. He says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it, they labor in what? In vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. It's interesting, because I think if Solomon were to sort of be here today and he were to call us together, here, I think here's what he would say to us out of this psalm. He would say to us, there is a thin line when it comes to our work. There's a thin line between fruitful and futile. And you and I, as human beings, we walk this thin line every single day. Here, he uses the word vain. And by that, if you were to look up the Hebrew, this word vain, it means emptiness or nothingness. He goes, there's a way to work. There's a way to work that ends up empty. My guess is you've, you've felt this at some point on some level. There's two ways that I've seen this, at least in my own life, play out and in the lives of people around me. One is that the way that we work, it just, it doesn't last. Like building a sandcastle at the beach and the waves come in and they just sort of wipe it out. Hey, it might be that financial portfolio. It could have been a marriage for you that just, the way you, you worked and you put in the effort and the other person didn't and the wave just, and the wave just came in and just knocked it out. So the way that we work, it just doesn't last sometimes. It's, it's vain. It's vanity. 
The other thing that happens to us is our work sometimes doesn't deliver. Have you ever got that promotion, got that raise, thought, okay, now I'm going to be able to get financially stable, and what happens when we get raises? I mean, somehow it just evaporates into thin air, doesn't it? Like, we're back to square one, or we got the new house, we got the new job, we got the new car, we drove the car off the lot, and that feeling was there for a few moments, for a few days, and then after a week, it was just a car. And the things that we work for sometimes, and the way that we work, they just come up empty. They don't deliver on what we hope they will. See, we live under this illusion, especially as we've gathered in sort of around the American dream, and the American dream would essentially say if we work hard enough and do enough, then eventually we will make it, we will succeed. And I've seen that story play out a ton of times in the lives of people all around me, and I tend to think that generally it works, but it doesn't work every time, does it? See, we think the equation is, if I put in enough work, and I work hard enough, then I will produce, and then I will make it, and it's always up and to the right. More work equals more production. And it's simply not true. It's simply not true. And Solomon, who's writing this psalm, if anybody could talk about the way that that doesn't work, it would be Solomon. Because Solomon was a great builder. If you've read some of the Old Testament, you know he spent 13 years having people build his house for him. I mean, he didn't just plant a garden in the back of his house. He planted forests. Okay? Anybody want to go, yeah, me too? No, you're lying. No, you did it. And he spent seven years. He commissioned the building of the temple of the Lord. He was a builder, and he tried his best to build a great life, too. He operated under this principle, if I work hard enough, if I do enough, if I have enough money, then I will be prosperous, I'll be successful, I will be satisfied. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, he, in this moment of just brutal honesty, listen to what he says. He says, and then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold... All was, what? Vanity. It might have been one of his favorite words. I'm not sure. All was vanity and a striving after the wind. You get the picture. Like, I thought I was getting there. I thought I was going to capture it. I thought I was going to make it. And right when I got there and I thought my work would have meaning and goodness and beauty, and it just slipped through my fingers. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. You go, wow, Solomon, like we have meds for that type of mindset now. Like we could really help you out. I mean, he's in a dark place. Psalm 127 would say the same thing. Would say the same thing. And so we'll say it in a negative way because that's the way that Solomon says it in this psalm and in much of Ecclesiastes. And it's this, we can work as hard as we want and do as much as we can. And if God doesn't show up and if God doesn't invade it, then it is simply emptiness. Well, let's close in prayer. No, 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 because there's an opposite side of that coin too. And that's what this psalm would be about, and that's essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is about, because Solomon gets to the end of that book and the end of this psalm, and he goes, listen, if we work just in our own might, and if we work in our own strength, and if we work for our own thing, yeah, it's empty and it's meaningless. But if we recognize that God is at work in the midst of our labor and that he is building something beautiful and something significant, he can infuse every moment of every day with his goodness and his purpose and his meaning. And so here's how we'll say it this morning. 
An awareness of God's activity creates capacity for abundant living. And so you could fill in whatever your, however you make a living here, whatever your work is, that an awareness of God's activity creates an abundant computer programming, abundant teaching, abundant mothering, abundant whatever, whatever you do. If you have an awareness of God as you do it, there's a capacity for beauty and meaning and goodness in the midst of it. I read a story um, a few days back of Yogi Berra, the great catcher for the New York Yankees. And they were in a tie, the Yankees were in a tie game with the other team that they were playing. And the guy steps into the batter's box and with his bat, the end of his bat, he draws a cross in the batter's box. And Yogi Berra from his catcher position reaches forward and brushes the cross away. And he looks at the batter and goes, let's just let God watch this one. I think there's many of us, where that's the way we feel about our work. That God, you can observe, and God, you can maybe give some input, but really, I feel like I'm on my own here. But friends, there is no, will you look up at me for just a second? I just, I want you to get this. There is no abundant life apart from the author of life. And many of us, we have, when it comes to our work, our vocation, our jobs, that's what Solomon's talking about here, we have this unsettled um, uneasiness deep within our soul. And I think it's because we've said to God, you know what, you can watch and you can look on, but I've got it, thank you very much. To quote the great fourth century theologian, St. Augustine, he said, thou hadst made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until it finds its rest in thee. That's Solomon's conclusion about the way that we work. See, faith in God creates the capacity for a life that flourishes, whether it's in the home or in our vocation or in our neighborhoods or in our churches. It's this faith in God recognizing that as I work, God brings meaning. And as I bring what God's called me to bring, God does what only he can do. And so I want to just dive in a little deeper to what Solomon says in this passage. So if you're following along, look at what he says in verse 1 of chapter 127 of the Psalms. Verse 1, he says, unless, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. And unless God watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. I think sometimes we might read this and go, well, that means I don't have to work. Praise the Lord. And that's not what he says at all. That's not what he says at all. He's saying, as you work, have an awareness that God works too. Do you know all throughout the scriptures you're called to work? That work is a condition of humanity before sin enters the world? It's not a fall, condition of the fall. We don't work because of sin. In fact, there's work pre-fall. If you go back and read the narrative, the beautiful narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are called to work before sin enters the world. We work now during the fall, and there will be work for you to do in God's kingdom that you will live in eternally. So if you don't like to work, you might not like heaven. That's for free. So what Solomon is not saying, please hear him correctly, he's not saying, well, so you can just sort of sit back and allow God to do it. 
No, no, no. He's saying, he's saying, unless God shows up, your work is futile, but you are called to work. And there's two ways the enemy twists this good gift of God that we call work. One of them is through um, what the scriptures would call, if you're a King James person, sloth, or if you have a regular Bible, laziness, okay? Laziness, right? Where we figure we can just get something handed to us and we don't have to work for it. Listen to the way that Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher, puts it when he says this. He says, the ordinary affairs of life, my dear brethren, do not, in the, in the ordinary affairs of life, do not go and put your feet up on the fender, sit still and say, the Lord will provide. Because if you act so foolishly, very likely he will provide you with a place to stay in the poorhouse. And if you go up and down the street with no profession, with your hands in your empty pockets and say that you are trusting in God, God will give you the wages you earn, namely poverty. He will clothe you with rags if you clothe yourself with idleness. If you will not serve him, you shall not find the reward that comes to the man. You shall find the reward that comes to the man who wastes his master's talents by wrapping them in a napkin. Here's how Paul would write it to the church at Thessalonica. For even when we were with you, he says, chapter 3, verse 10, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So Solomon's not saying, hey, just sit back and take it easy. That's one of the ways the enemy twists this good gift of work. The second way is by causing us to put too much weight on what we do. And so we live in a society where if you ask somebody to tell you about themselves, often they will respond by telling you what they do. It's a way of sort of displaying, I find my identity and I find my worth in my work. It's who I am. It's the very core of my being is found in what I produce. It's no wonder that work-related stress is such an epidemic in our day and our time. Because we put all of this self-reliance on, I've got to make it happen. There was this famous pastor who just recently in the last few weeks has a church that's growing exponentially. And he had this goal that his church would reach 100,000 people. And recently he had this moral fall. And listen to his own words as he reflects on that. He says, what we've seen the Lord do over the last 16 years has been a modern day miracle. However, in my obsession to do everything possible to reach 100,000 people and beyond, it's come at a personal cost to my own life and created a strain on my own marriage. You go, hey, somebody who's working, quote unquote, for the Lord, doing a good thing, but here's what he lost sight of. He lost sight of the way that we work, quote unquote, with God is in partnership, not in isolation. And so here's the big idea I just want you to get from this is that you and I, we are called, we are called by God to commit to effort. We've got to put in the quote unquote work, but to trust God for the outcomes. We give our best. And we trust that God will bring the growth. See, friends, productivity is found in partnership. Unless God shows up, the builder builds in vain. Paul would say the same thing to the church at Corinth. When people were debating over who they would follow, would they follow Paul or would they follow Apollos? Here's what he says. He says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Paul writes, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who what? Gives the growth. It's he's the the one that's producing. Oh, sure, Paul and Apollos, they work hard, and Paul will tell you in his letters just how hard he works. But he works hard with the recognition that, God, we are in this together, and I'm bringing my best to the table, but God, I'm trusting that you are the one who will bring the growth, that you're the one who brings the meaning. I work, I labor, but you bring the meaning. You create something beautiful out of the work of my hands. We were reminded of this um, a a few years back when Kelly and I and the kids planted a garden. Um, We weren't exactly ambitious. I mean, we have like an eight foot by four foot uh, rectangle in our backyard. I mean, we weren't really going for it. We're not organic. I mean, we're not anything, right? We're just trying to give the kids an experience. And so we, you know, tilled the ground and we planted the seeds and and then um, harvest time came. And I use that term harvest loosely because now here on my right, on my right is not a genetically modified carrot. That, that carrot has no steroids in it whatsoever. That's just a normal carrot. That's a baby carrot, actually. No, I'm just kidding. It's not. But, but these are, if you had a microscope, you could see our carrots that we got from our garden. And isn't it, doesn't life sometimes feel that way? Hey, God, hey, we put in, we put in the work. God, we watered. God, we did our part. And I was passed over by the promotion. And God, my portfolio didn't perform the way that I wanted it to. And God, the relationship just didn't pan out, even though I put in all the work that I thought I needed to to make it happen. Have you ever stopped to think about how much of your life you're actually out of control of? And we live under the illusion that, hey, if we put in the work, it's going to turn out good. But it only takes one phone call from the doctor to crush that into reality, doesn't it? I mean, you can eat all the kale and all the broccoli you want, and I say to that, praise the Lord, good luck, you can have it, right? (laughs) But in the end, in the end, so much of our life, so much of your life is in the hands of a sovereign creator. We want to control it, don't we? We think if we work harder, we'll produce more. And our goal in that is I want to control every single aspect of my life. And so we hear a message like this, and initially it rubs against our humanity. But I want to say to you, this should be great news for you today. And here's why. Because it is the reality of the world that we all live in. And what Solomon wants to do is just pull back, pull back the curtains a little bit and go, isn't this true? Isn't this real? That's the world we all live in. And so we can, in good conscience, give our best, but we've got to trust God to bring the growth. It's true in parenting. It's true in marriage. It's true in your vocation and in your work. So Solomon says, hey, like even if the Lord, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. So first he talks about provision, now he talks about protection. And he goes, hey, the best army in the world is not a fail-safe against getting attacked. 
The best politicians in the world cannot make your nation or your country, quote unquote, ultimately safe. Now, I'm all about having a good military. I'm all about electing great politicians. But friends, as good luck with that one this year. As friends, <laughs> as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, our hope is not in our military. Our hope is not in who we elect. Our only hope is in the God who stands sovereign above it all. That's our hope. So much of it is in his hands. And that's what Solomon would remind us of. See, Paul continues in that great passage in 2 Corinthians. He draws out something that I think Solomon would say to us as well. He says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So friends, you give the effort. God controls the outcomes. But will you, as you do that, recognize and understand that the fruitfulness of your life is determined by the foundation of your life? And if we build on a faulty foundation, we're never going to get the, pro the pr production from our life that we hope for, that we pray for, and that we long for. I saw a news article a number of uh, days ago where uh, they started to talk about this building. It's called the Millennial, the Millennial Tower in San Francisco. It was built in 2009, 58 stories tall. And over the last few years, they've noticed that the windows are a little bit harder to open and some people's doors stopped working. And so people like Joe Montana, who bought luxury condos in this high rise, and Hunter Pence, who plays for the Giants, built, bought luxury $10 million homes in this space, now are living in a building that has sunk 16 inches and is tilting just two inches but if you lived on floor number 58, two inches makes a difference, does it not? And so oftentimes we do this work in our life, whether it's in a vocation or in a relationship, and we put our all into it, but we're building on the wrong foundation. And unless the foundation of our lives is the one true God, our lives eventually will encounter a storm and they will start to tilt. And Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. And his encouragement and his teaching is, hey, the storms in life will come. It's not an if, it's a when. And what will be revealed in the storms of life? is what foundation you have built on. So can I just give you two quick pieces of encouragement today? One, build on the foundation of his wisdom. Build on the foundation of his wisdom. I think a lot of times we expect God's blessing without our willingness to be obedient. We want his blessing in a marriage, but we won't live in marriage according to the scriptures. And relationships, we want his hand of blessing on those, but we won't do those in the way that he instructs us to do them. With our finances, we want God to bless them. But we'll often say, God, I'm not going to operate my finances in the way that you want me to. I cannot expect God's blessing if I'm not willing to be obedient to his wisdom. And it's going to just be building on sand. You can build a great structure, but eventually... What you're building on will be revealed, and it's only a foundation on Jesus that will be fruitful. Second thing. So not only are we enlightened by his wisdom, that's how we build on this foundation, but we are empowered by his spirit. See, Paul would say it like this. 
After saying, listen, I work, I struggle with all, everything I've got to present the church blameless before God. He says, for this I toil, struggling with what? All his energy, all God's energy that so powerfully works within me. Don't you love that picture of Paul? I mean, working his hands to the bone, empowered by the spirit of God. What does that look like? What does it look like to be empowered by God's spirit? Well, as I thought about it, here, here's the way it works for me. One, it's a recognition of the love of the Father that the spirit pours out into my heart. If I don't, get, if I don't have that, I am working on willpower alone, and that will only take me so far. But friends, when I hear God speak his goodness and his love over me, calling me his child, I, I could go forever. Secondly, for me, there is a strength in being reminded of my salvation and the joy that's found in that. In fact, the scriptures will explicitly state the joy of the Lord is our strength. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so our hearts are stirred with the love of the Father. That's what it means. Our soul is encouraged by the voice and testimony of the Spirit. And our lives are permeated with the joy of the gospel that declares he is our chief cornerstone. He is the one who we build around and we build on. And he is the one who holds it all together. And so Solomon will write this, unless the builder builds in vain, unless God builds the house, the laborers labor in vain, they build in vain. And that can be sort of poetic and hard for us to really wrap our hearts and our minds around to say, God, am I doing that, God? Am I, am I building in vain? Is this life in vain? And he wants to answer a question that you may have in saying, how do we tell? How can we know? Here's how you can know. It is in vain that you rise up early. And so, like, um, my guess is the high schoolers and the college students are going, man, I love that verse. Let, praise Jesus. Get a tattoo of that one, right? Okay. It's in vain that you rise up early. They don't like this part, though. And go late to rest. <laughs> Eating the bread of what? Anxious toil. See, that's the litmus test for, God, am I trusting that you're doing your part and that I'm called to do mine? Have I gotten the roles mixed up? And when I get the roles mixed up, I often start to get anxious. I start to feel like I'm in control of more than I'm actually in control of. I start to feel like if it's going to happen, I've got to make it happen. And really what I've forgotten is that God is present and active in every moment of every day. And so the question we have to wrestle with is anxious toil, anxious working, anxious for, the, for these people, anxious farming, <laughs> And Solomon would go, hey, let's just, can we talk for a moment? Has your anxious farming ever produced more of a crop? Has anyone ever thought, you know what? I am so glad I worried about whether or not those crops were going to grow. Because the fact that I worried actually made them grow more. No. No one's ever said that. What Solomon's doing is inviting us to trust that while we do our work, God does his. I am nowhere more keenly aware of that reality than when I stand right in this place right here. 
that I work, I study, I pray, I prepare, but I am absolutely at the mercy of God moving in your life because it's not me. If something happens, it is him. And so much of the time, I think it has to be me. But when I believe and when you believe that God is at work, we can actually cease from our labor. And that's built into what it means to be human. If you go back and you read Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve, they wake up in this paradise garden on day six, day six of God's creative act. And on day seven, God says, hey, let's just stop and everybody pause and everybody rest. I've often read that and gone, well, what are Adam and Eve tired from? Like they just woke up naked in a garden. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? I mean, what are they tired from? Don't answer that. What are they tired from? <laughs> See, and built into the rhythm of what it means to be human is this recognition, A, that when we cease from our work, God continues his. Secondly, Adam and Eve are called to stop and pause and look around and take in the beauty, of the, uh, beauty all around them and recognize we did absolutely nothing to create this. And God, you are at work. And God, you are moving. And the human anxious soul is healed when we step into that rhythm of work and rest and Sabbath, recognizing even when we stop, God works, and that God is the creative master of everything we see all around us. And so Solomon will say, Solomon will say, eating the bread of anxious toil, like that's one of the ways we recognize we're out of joint. We're not trusting God to do his part. We think we have to do his part and we have to do ours because God is a good God and he gives his beloved sleep. He gives them rest. He invites them to take his yoke upon them because he is gentle and humble in heart. I love this word. He gives his beloved, those whom he calls his own, he gives them rest. And when you and I recognize that embracing rest is a byproduct of receiving love, we position our souls to be made whole by a God who says, I'm at work, even when you stop. And that might be a word for some of you here today. You might have come in under the bondage of religion that says you've got to keep doing it. You've got to do enough. You've got to work your way up to God. And what God would say to you this morning is allow my announcement over you to quiet the anxiety within you. I love you and I'm good. And even when you stop, I keep working. Well, he closes this psalm with what many would say and teach is the main point. I actually think it's an illustration of what Solomon has already taught. I think it's a picture for us to see the way that when, when we trust that God is at work, it creates space for abundant life. And he uses this illustration that we see all around us. He says this, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord or a blessing from the Lord. Now remember, this is a psalm of ascent, so they're singing this as they're hiking and as they're walking. And if you've ever gone on a hike with a child, you need to be reminded that they're a blessing from the Lord. Because <laughs> you wonder, 
only with every step. The fruit of the womb is a reward. He says, like arrows in the hand of a warrior or children's of one youth, one's youth. Blessed is the man or the person who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame. And when he speaks with his enemies at the gate. See, what Solomon is teaching us is, yes, children in this time, they were a legacy. They, they still are. They were a protection. They were a workforce. If you had a lot of kids, you had a lot of people that could work in the field. They were a picture of God's blessing. In fact, they were a picture of God's goodness and his abundant blessing. But if you've ever observed kids, you know that you're called to put in the effort, especially if you're a parent, you're called to put in the effort, but you've got to trust God for the outcome. And as much as we'd love to control how their lives go, much of it is in the hands of our father, is it not? Like arrows that an archer would pull back. And in that day and time, uh, an archer was not exactly a precise shooter. They just sort of launch them. He goes, yeah, that's sort of what raising kids is like. Uh, when you're interacting with kids, the foundation that you lay will often determine the fruit that their lives bear. That when you create a space where they are loved and cared for, they're able to rest without having to prove that they're your kids, but they can simply crawl under the gracious covering that your love provides for them. In a very real way, kids draw out the reality that some of the greatest blessings in our life are the work of God's hands and God's grace not the work of our striving and our labor. That's the picture that Solomon is painting. Eugene Peterson sort of um, tongue-in-cheek comically says, the entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires participation, but hardly in the form of what we would call work. Think about it. Think about it. If you have kids, they're a great example. If you don't, my guess is you would be able to affirm with an avid amen, yeah, some of the best things in my life did not come because I worked really hard and I earned them. That if we're able to step back, some of the best things in our life are simply the gift of grace. If you're married, it might be a spouse. Listen, I praise the Lord every day he blinded Kelly long enough to allow me to swoop in there. Praise <laughs> Jesus. It's an amen. And I don't know what it is for you, but I'd encourage you sometime this week to just pause and to pray and to say, God, stir in me. What are the greatest things that I have in my life? And my guess is the greatest things you have in your life are grace given from the hand of God, not from the hard striving and toil of your hands. That's his point. Recognize that. Rest in that. Do your part, yeah. But invite God to do his. See, friends, if you can't think of anything else, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want to say as clearly as I can to you today that that salvation that you have, of being in Christ, is not something that you earned. It's not something that you worked hard enough in order to get. And it's not something that you produced. 
It flows from the gracious hand of your heavenly Father, who when Jesus walked to the cross, he carried all of your sin. He did the work you could never do to invite you into the life that you could never earn. And your salvation, the greatest thing in your life if you're a follower of Jesus, is the byproduct of your Father's grace and goodness, not the product of the work of your hands, so that none of us can boast. So for 2,000 years, followers of Jesus have been gathering around a table to celebrate a meal, to remember that when he went to the cross and paid the penalty for your sin and for my sin, he said, it is finished. It's done. Your salvation is purchased. There's nothing else to earn. And as a good father, he calls you children and he invites you to crawl up under his protective covering to remember that he's good, to remember that he's God, to remember the lavish love that even allows us to be called children and to look at fear in the face and say, I no longer have to be controlled by you because I am a child of the most high God. And even when it feels like my hands are tied, his are not. And even if it feels like my sandcastles are getting swept away, he's got a plan and he is good and I'm clinging to him. And that's what we remember when we come to this table, his body and his blood purchasing us that calls us sons and daughters of the king. I invite you to put your stuff away and we're going to celebrate this communion sacrament together. If you need gluten-free bread, it's on the green napkin that's to my left, your right. And I'd invite you as you come forward to take a piece of bread and to take a cup and you can celebrate the, take the bread and eat it whenever you so feel led, but would you save the cup? We'll celebrate that as a community of faith together, remembering that we've been invited to walk with one another. Let's pray, and then I'll invite you to come forward. So Father, we come this morning celebrating your work, what you've done on our behalf. And that when we were unable to make a way on our own, you made one for us. Would you help us to believe that, number one? And then would you help us every single day to believe that you are at work in the midst of everything that we do? Father, as we come this morning, would you meet us in this place and change us, help us see Jesus? We believe if we see him, we'll be changed. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to come forward as you so feel led.